You're listening to KXOB, Ocean Beach, where Constancy is the spice of life. Welcome to Beach Cop Detectives, the Terriers Podcast, Episode 2, Dog and Pony. I'm Randy Lander from the TV Dudes, and with me today is Mike Moody from the Mr. Roboto Podcast. Hey, Randy. Thanks for having me on. So this is partly inspired by you, actually, because much as I love Terriers, it never occurred to me to do a single episode podcast until you did your Mr. Roboto Podcast, which I guest started on one, one episode of. And I was like, oh, I could do an episodic podcast for Terriers. So thank you. I've always been known as an influencer, so you're not saying anything new to me. You know, people tell me this on the street all the time. Mike, you know, I bought this shirt because of you. Mike, I shaved my head because of you. Mike, you got cancer. Now I have cancer. Thank you for that. (laughs) I had cancer before you had cancer. That's true. You know, I shouldn't have brought that up because you were the originator. I was going to say. You're the original cancer nerd. I'm the trailblazer. Yeah. By the way, folks, we are not entirely kidding. Both of us have both had <laughs> cancer and I believe are both currently in remission. We are, yes. So this episode uh, we we're talking about today is Dog and Pony. It was the second episode of Terriers. It is directed by Clark Johnson. This is his only Terriers episode, but he directed seven episodes of The Shield prior to this. And I looked around and it looks to me like he directed an episode of every Sean Ryan show, starting with The Shield, most recently Mad Dogs. He also directed four episodes of The Wire and starred on The Wire as city editor Gus Haynes. I used to be a newspaper. Okay. Yeah. I was, okay. I was a night editor at a small daily in South Texas. And when he played Gus Haynes as a city editor, I, I swear to God I'd worked for that guy before. Because he just <laughs> fit right into that role so well. And he's great. And I was surprised today when I looked this episode up that he directed. I had no idea he was a director. I knew him as an actor. Loved him as an actor. Had no idea he directed it, so it just made me love this episode even more. Yeah, I, I picked up on his name from The Shield, but I had not remembered that he directed an episode of Terriers. And yeah, I thought Terriers in general has great direction and visual style, but this one in particular had some beautiful shots, I thought, especially some of the beach work, some of the pickup shots. There's a really nice background extra where it's like a, a legless uh, skateboarder goes by them. And I remember thinking, wow, that was a great pickup shot. I wonder if that was, that couldn't have been in the script. Like, did they just find an extra and they just had that guy? Because this is great bit of local color from Ocean Beach. There's a lot of local color in this show. There's a scene when they're in jail. And I, it looks like there's a trans woman in yes. jail with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, okay, fine. You know, there's a trans woman in jail with him. There's a little bit of background color. But for me, she kind of stole a few moments of the scene because I forgot what the exchange was. But basically, Britt says something kind of stupid like he does sometimes sure and the camera just kind of focuses on her reaction and it kind of gives you the read on how to read the scene you know i love that yeah terrors is a show that does a lot with its extras yeah definitely so the episode is written by ted griffin of course and also sean ryan who is the executive producer co-creator he is credited on this episode and pimp daddy for terriers he only he's only got two writers credits on the show Pimp Daddy, of course, uh, we'll talk about that later. I'm trying to stay away from spoilers for the whole season in case people have not seen it. The other people credited on this are Jed Seidel, who has a lot of credits, notably a few Veronica Mars episodes, which I think Veronica Mars is a spiritual cousin to Terriers. Definitely. And then Leslie Headland was one of the two staff writers. She wrote About Last Night, the 2014 version, and Sleeping with Other People, among other things. And John Worley, who was a staff writer, who later became staff on Sean Ryan's Chicago Code, and he was a story editor on Justified. Man, you go really deep on these credits. I do. You know, Mr. Roboto, I'm like, uh, I guess Sam Esmail wrote this. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. 
Yes, I'm, and I'm using IMD for all this, which is always dangerous. Yeah. Because every time I've used interview questions off IMDb, I get corrected. <laughs> uh, so it's a little dangerous, but I just want to give credit where credit's due. And it's interesting to, miss, to see the different cooks in the kitchen that give you sort of the same result, because this show is very much Ted Griffin's vision. Oh, yeah. Uh, every uh, the, the dialogue, everything about it, the, the setting, all that is very much Ted Griffin. But there's little elements of different writers that you see in different episodes. And so I'm curious, like... What exactly was it that Jed Seidel brought to this this episode? Was it the sort of the quirkiness of the main plot? Was it the relationship stuff that goes on between Katie and Britt? And I, and I always try to watch. I can't, of course, know, but I always like to keep that in my mind when I'm watching the episode and seeing like, oh, this person worked on this episode, but no other episodes. It's hard for me to say what exactly he might have brought to this episode because I watched Terriers in full when it first aired. On FX, you know, I had the DVR set up and I would watch it. I didn't watch it all live, but, you know, pretty much when it first aired is when I watched it. I have revisited here and there on Netflix. Yeah. But I haven't done a full series rewatch since like 2010 or something back like six oh, years. So yeah. you don't do what I call a year, the Randy's yearly Terrier's Christmas. <laughs> No, no, no. Do you watch? Do you <laughs> watch it every year? I don't. I don't plan it out or anything, but I have absolutely watched it every year since okay. it's been on. Yeah, because I, I did watch the pilot again, and I did watch the second episode this week for for this. Sure. And I didn't watch anything beyond this because I know you're not doing spoilers, right? But it's hard for me to kind of compare this one to the rest of the series, you know, and kind of just zero it in on this one. I didn't realize you were a Terriers OG, so you you were watching this when it was live on the show. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I was taping it, DVRing it. Yeah, uh, it just looks so strange, you mm-hmm. know. The previous four, at first, I was like, okay, and I'm sure you've heard this before. It's we like, haven't actually talked too much about it. We're only in the second oh, episode, oh, so right on, yeah. let's talk about the marketing. Okay, yeah. It was bad. It was bad. It was bad. Is this a show about dogs? Yeah. I think is uh, is the, the running commentary about the marketing, right? Yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing, and I, I don't want to get, I don't want to be defending the marketing because it clearly did not do its job. Mm. But at the same time, they did put, as I recall... You know, Sean Ryan, creator of The Shield, Ted Griffin, creator of Ocean's Eleven. And I don't know why anyone who's serious about TV wouldn't look at that and go, oh, I don't care if it's about dogs. I got to see what that show's about. Yeah. For me, I mean, that was part of the attraction. But the big attraction was Denal Oak. Yeah. I was a huge Denal Oak fan. Dallas Steve. Have you seen that movie? No, I have not. Okay. Very small, tiny indie movie. Late 90s, early 2000s. I remember it. And I remember his name being floated around as yeah. someone to watch for. But I had not. he had not gotten on my radar yet. Okay. That movie, I just became such a huge fan of his, you know, and everything after that, I've been following his career. I even watched Gotham, but that's a tangent, uh, <laughs> but he's on Gotham, so I watch it. But, you know, the big reason I started watching this show live when it came out was I couldn't believe, okay, somebody put Denal Logue in the lead kind of serialized case of the week cop show. That's kind of what I thought it was going in. Of course, it's much more than that. Yeah. And you get that sense pretty early on. Even the second episode, they start off following up directly on the first episode. They are mm-hmm. in uh, Gustafson's office, and he, they're talking with ADA Lauren Rivera. Their lawyer, Maggie, who I love, played by Jimmy Dimbo. She's great, uh, is there sort of you know helping them out. The, it's, it's directly tying into what they did at the end of the first episode, which is to plant a gun on Lindis, mm-hmm. on, on his property. But you can see that Gustafson knows Hank enough well. He can't 100% call bullshit on it, but he knows he's full of shit. Like, he knows for sure Hank did something. Yeah, right now, I really, like, in the first two episodes, you're kind of wondering about that relationship mm-hmm. between Hank and Gustafson. I think it's this episode, especially when that really important scene, it's a very short scene, but when he takes Brit aside at the end, Gustafson, yeah. and he says, okay, this guy, Hank, 
You've been with him for a few years. I've been with him for a long time. He's going to let you down. You are a good friend. I give you credit for that. But you got to know he is going to let you down. Uh, maybe he won't do it on purpose, but uh, he will. God knows that I love Hank, but it is not in Hank Dalworth to do anything but self-destruct on people. And when he does, everybody catches shrapnel. <laughs> I got the scars to prove it. You want to learn how to duck? You call me. Yeah, that is a great scene. It's really important and it it comes as always the next episode you see some of that paying off that maybe hank isn't the best partner in the world yeah and it's interesting because for me when i first watched it i guess i was kind of wavering like okay this gustafson guy is he just an asshole you know right but it's not just that you know there's reasons for why he has this love-hate relationship with hank and kind of this really cynical relationship toward him you know and you you kind of get that feeling here in this episode and one of the great things this episode does, not only does it give us a really good, twisty, fun case of the week, a, a Terrier's branded case of the week, uh, it also does some really great world building and really great character building. And that's kind of what you need in the second episode. There's a lot of like re-exposition that we get here from the pilot, mm-hmm. especially concerning Hank and his, his mindset and where he's at now. The show kind of retells us, you know, where he's at with his ex-wife and everything like that, which... I guess you kind of have to do. That's a pretty standard thing for pilots. It does seem to be that the pilot, and this is a, a common complaint, but also just kind of a uh, accepted wisdom amongst TV critics, is that the second episode is going to be basically a rehash of the pilot. Right. And to some extent it is, but what I like is that when they show us the same thing, they show it from different angles. That's true. So they're showing us, the, for example, the Katie Britt, the relationship they have and sort of her desire to have kids or not have kids. We see it from a different angle. We were seeing it previously where she was talking to Hank about how she wants kids and she's not sure if Britt's up to it. And this time we see, oh, well, she wants kids, but she's not sure she's up to it. When we see Gustafson and Hank, we get a much better sense of what their relationship was like. It's not just that Gustafson's being the, the bristly asshole. We see that, oh, Hank's lying to him and Hank's lied to him before <laughs> and he knows it. And the same thing with the Linda stuff. We're seeing, we're seeing, the, you know, it's, it's in there. It's, it's sort of dropped in there. Lindus is not very heavy in this episode. He's, no. he's barely in here. He's not in episode three much at all. Episode four, he'll come in pretty, pretty heavy. But we see, oh, his assets have been frozen. He got a gun planted on him. All the, all the basics are covered, but it's not the same. We don't see the guy. We don't see a, a reference to the plot and all that thing from the beginning. I thought they did a good job of reestablishing, but not retreading one of the great things is the katie and brit subplot yeah you watch this whole episode and at the end it you realize it's this really tender story about a couple that is really trying to make a go of it you know yeah. and they really want to have a family and they're really nervous about it well one of the things that cliff and i talked about in the first episode is that katie and brit it's a, it's a real relationship mm-hmm. But at the same time, both of them are bringing their baggage to it. Britt is oh, still yeah. worried about screwing up. He's mm-hmm. still worried about being the grown-up kid. Katie's still worried about that, too, and worried about becoming the grown-up and whether or not she can do that with Britt. And so I think that seeing things like Britt takes Katie to the dry cleaners at the end and they adopt Winston, yeah. like that's their version of we're in this together, we got this kid. When you go back, Katie gets to talk with Montel, their big, bulky client guy. And I love the subversion of expectations, which Terriers does a lot of, in that Montel is not just this big, dumb, violent dude. He's got he's got a little heart to him. When he talks to Katie about 
the dog and about kids and how it'd be different and that kind of thing. You see, you see a little bit of him and you see that she's, you know, she's scared, but she's open to the idea of it. I also love that when, when they bring in Montel and he's been shot, that Katie is both having none of it. Why did you bring this guy to my house? And at the same time, totally game because she goes and gets her stuff and sews him up. Yeah, it's a total like a, a Jimmy from Pulp Fiction situation. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're here? Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, no, my wife is going to show up right now. No, but this was different. But I like that she jumps into the game. You yeah. know, I really like it. And she knows her boundaries. Like at the end during that scene when Montel kind of talks about how, you know, that this dog shouldn't really represent your feelings about a child. Yeah. I like that she still has those boundaries. She doesn't go in the room because she's like, okay, the guy's told me not to get in the room here. Okay. Right. But- I still want to hear what you're saying. And it's a really nice inversion, like you were saying, of expectation. Going back to her plotline with Brit, you know, it's such a sweet thing. And it's rare that such a sweet relationship story starts out with a guy going down on his girl <laughs> yeah, and, I was gonna, and their pet dog licking his balls. Yeah, I was going to talk about that because this is this is early FX. But that was uh, fairly graphic and fairly adventurous for them. <laughs> yeah. And then the bit about the dog and, well, let's, let's just let Brit tell it. Somebody just lick my balls. Don't look at me. I'm all the way up here. He's just comparing the taste of yours to his own. All the dogs in the pond, we got to get a gay one. Yeah, his cage was very tidy. I think that that's one of the things I really like about both Katie and Britt and to a lesser extent Gretchen and Hank in what we've seen as sort of the complicated dramas, Breaking Bad and any number of other shows. We get this pe- thing where a lot of the fans really see the wife or the girlfriend as the scold, as the negative. Even when they're in the right, they get pinned as the scold or the or the, or the person who is being the being the jerk. And I like that Terriers doesn't really do that because you you're always on Katie's side, even when she screws up big time, like she will later in the series. And when Gretchen is being hard on Hank, Gretchen has earned that. And usually Gretchen isn't hard on Hank. Usually Hank feels he's the most most hurt when Gretchen is going easy on him. When she's trying to be nice, you can see the pain in Hank's eyes because you can see what he's lost. Yeah, that's a big thing between him and Gretchen. You know, you watch these first two episodes and everyone's telling him, don't buy this house. This is a physical representation of all your failure. This is where your marriage went wrong. This is where you got kicked out of the, the force. Everything went wrong for you here. Why are you going back? And you're watching this and you're seeing his interactions with Gretchen. And the show has such a wonderful tone because it's just left of real world you know it's a little skewed so what you're watching is hank trying to recapture what he had before with gretchen my point about the tone was that it allows for these characters even though this show is all about the two guys right it allows for the female characters in their lives to feel fleshed out to feel like real people which i think is really different from other you know kind of quirky cop procedurals that you get on tv yeah, and I think one of the things that's interesting is talking about relationships. Even the relationship that we only get in this episode, the one between Agatha and Montel, mm. is very well developed. Like, mm. she could easily have been the crazy hippie fortune teller. Mm. He could easily have been the, the dumb muscle. And instead, when you get to the end and they've got that really sweet moment where she comes up and throws throws herself at him and gives a big hug where he's holding out, you totally buy that this is the happy ending. Like, in a version of the story, that was the story. Like, the story of Montel and Agatha and their happy ending was the tale. 
And we were just seeing it from Britain, Brit and Hank's eyes. Yeah, I, I really didn't see that coming. You know, you have another love story here. And that's where it goes back to the tone of this show. It's like a magic tone. It's it's like the real world, but it's just a slightly askew, slightly left to center. Yeah. And you can see that in, and we talked about it a little bit earlier, with the fringe characters or even the background characters. On many other shows, they're just wallpaper. On many other shows, they're just archetypes, and you can see their arc even before they say a word, right? But here, they almost feel like real people. They feel fleshed out. They have their quirks. They have their issues. You learn more about these characters as the episode goes on, which is really different, you know? And one of the it's just one of the many charming things about this show, which, for me, the most charming thing probably is... The dialogue. I love the dialogue. Yeah, the dialogue in here is great, and I've been excerpting it in various places, and we'll continue to do it in the show. But we're just just skimming the surface because there's so many great moments, so many great exchanges. But Ted Griffin mentioned that one of the big influences for him, well, two of the big influences were The Sting and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, yeah. And both of those, you can see that sort of verbal patois and the sort of easy jokes that Hank and Britt do and the running jokes. The the running joke in this episode is the half brothers thing. It gets brought up every time it's mentioned. Brother, half brother. It, it's yes. and it's like the first episode where they're doing the in trouble thing and uh, it's only does the round belly. Like there's right. always that kind of gag. There's always that running gag. And, you know, the first episode also had Britt of course tor- or Hank tormenting Britt with the uh why do birds suddenly appear song. Mm-hmm. Uh no, it was it was Britt tormenting Hank, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just little things like that where you see how much these guys love each other and how much they love bucking the shit out of each other. They really do. I think one of my favorite lines at the beginning was, Brit is coming out of questioning. Right? Yeah. How'd it go? Well, it was like showering in a Mexican jail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then there's the discussion that takes place right after that, which has one of my favorite lines of the series. The Lord taketh away, he also giveth. Well, he will also bonus if anyone finds out we planted that gun. We framed a guilty man. The Lord's light shineth upon us. Quit it. Quitteth what? You're pissing them off. Look, we nab Montel, put a little change in our pocket, and then we start at the Tony. And that, I think, is the ethos of Terriers right there, which is if you can't win by legit means and you're sure you're right, go ahead and cheat, which is kind of the thing that gets Hank in trouble. And we'll, again, I don't want to get too into spoilers, but it gets it got him into big trouble. It's definitely what led him to his current circumstances. That's hinted at a lot in this episode. Just in the second episode, I mean, in the first episode, you're kind of already chomping at the bit to learn more about Hank's backstory mm-hmm. and figure out exactly how these two guys got together, what the hell they're doing together. But here, if you weren't already emotionally attached to Hank, you really are by the end of this episode. Yeah. Let's, so let's talk a little bit before we get to the sort of the A plot, the Montel story, the B plot of uh, of Gretchen and the house and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That is definitely the, the more into sort of Hank's relationships and Hank's foibles. The whole thing where Gretchen is basically talking to him, trying to give him the out. Like, if you don't want to buy the house, you've got all this stuff. And Hank is having none of it. He asked literally everyone in his life if he should do this. And literally everyone in his life tells him no. And yet when it comes to it, and Gretchen asks him about it. He, he says, I sort of got a consensus. Right. The, the consensus was don't do this, but that's not what he tells her, which is another common theme in Terriers is that Hank lies a lot, never for his own interests. Yeah, this show, it's all about the subtext between Hank and Gretchen. They're talking about the house. Mm-hmm. And this is what great TV does. They're talking about something on the surface, but really what they're talking about is much deeper. Yeah. Much deeper. Hank is trying to hold on to her, hold on to their life. She may be on a surface emotional level 
also doesn't want to let him go. Right. But she does want to give him that out because she probably knows, well, I'm trying to move on. This is the best thing for me to move on and for him to get out of this house. Right. Well, and the house is absolutely a metaphor for their relationship. Indeed. It's the physical representation of what it was. And they even flashback to show the early days. There was, I mean, I thought nothing would be more heartbreaking than watching Hank's face when Gretchen takes that call from Jason. Yeah. But watching them in the past mm-hmm. and interact when there was all promise and potential is more heartbreaking. You know, that's that's such a sad thing because you see Hank in this show. You see Britt in this show. These are guys who are scrappy, who will get the job done, but these are not guys who will present well, ever, right? So you watch these guys, and you're like, okay, these these are losers. You know, these are losers. And so when we look at this flashback, and we see Hank with his, his wife in the brand new house, and they're talking about all this potential, that just hits you in the gut. She talks about, the potential's great right now, and I love it right now, because we'll probably screw it up. Well, no, we're not going to screw it up, but you know they screw it up. It's just so sad because I think any of us can relate to that. You put money into something new, you you have a new relationship, and you're at that moment where the potential's there. And then it, if it goes wrong and you look back at that, you have a very sentimental feeling. Sometimes you have a depressed feeling. And this episode with that flashback just captures that so well. I could really relate to that. You go back and you see anybody's made mistakes and everybody's had things they wish they'd done or wish they hadn't done. I think the interesting thing is that Hank has the chance again. Hank keeps blowing his chances. He has the chance to course correct, to tell the truth, to start living within the rules. And time and time again, we see him choose not to. The latest is the the way the sort of the B-plot ends here where she tells him, she literally tells him the out. She says, you have 72 hours buyer's remorse. Just don't make any structural changes. What does he do? The first thing he does is something he can't walk back. And it's a representation. I mean, he's destroying a wall that he remembers she had talked about taking out. So he's basically doing something five years later than she needed him to do it. That was a great image. It was a great image, not only because he's, I guess, fulfilling that promise to Gretchen that he made all those years ago and and didn't, didn't follow through with, but it shows you just... How sentimental, spontaneous, and destructive Hank can be. At the same time, At yeah. the same time. Just how, how great of a ball of emotion that is. It's such a great ending. Well, and that's one of the other things that I see a lot in Terriers is that their storytelling is very concise. Yeah. They, will, they will make one or two points in the same scene in different ways. Like you say, we see various sides of Hank's in, that one, in one action. And there's a lot of that kind of thing going on. So let's, let's jump over to the A-plot, which is... Sort of the case of the week, and yet some of these case of the week stories on a lot of shows I find kind of dull. I don't think there was any case of the week on Terriers that I found dull. And this one I thought was a, like I say, a really interesting story you can watch from another angle as basically not even a Terrier story. It's a story of this ex-criminal with sort of violent tendencies and the woman he loves and them trying to escape this dangerous world that they live in. They want to get out of the, the crime and all that kind of thing and just flee to Mexico and live their life together. And the story is sort of about that as much as anything else. What I love is the way it subverts expectations and that you expect. Yeah, Montel is uh, is the guy, Montel Gobright, uh, arrested for arms robbery. They get the fugitive alert from Gustafson's office, which I think is another great example of Hank cutting corners. They just distract him and then they steal a, a big warrant. Montel Gobright is played by Matthew Willig, who you might know from a number of things. I remember him from We're the Millers, where he played a heavy he played like the big bad guy, oh. and he played Lash on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. What? Yep. <laughs> and here's the interesting thing. Matthew Willick is a former NFL player. He has a Super Bowl ring. Whoa. He won the Super Bowl twice, and they won once. 
So this guy's a former NFL player, which when you look at him, you're like, yeah, former NFL player. Linebacker, man. But he's a, he's great, and he, he's been in a ton of shows and movies, and he's great here because he's like not a gentle giant, because the first time we meet him, he throws Hank through a wall. <laughs> yes. But uh, a less a more complicated guy than you'd expect. He's he's a guy who he's just looking out for his girl. He's just trying to get his piece of what he did for his uh, manipulative piece of shit brother. Like I felt for Montel in this whole shit. Like I, I fell right in with him. He gets shot by his piece of shit brother. Like I was right with him the whole time. What's the name of the actor again who who plays him? Uh, that is Matthew Willick. Okay, Matthew Willick. You know when he got this script, he was like, "Holy shit." I actually have an arc here. I'm not just a giant hulking mass that beats somebody up. I mean, right. he does that, yeah. but then things change towards the end. You know, that's the beauty of Terriers. Yeah, I agreed. Uh, his girlfriend, by the way, is uh, this one of my favorite character names, Agatha Hagglethorpe. Right. I'm not making that up. Uh, the, the girlfriend, fortune teller. Uh, she is Jean, and I know I'm going to mess up this name, Villapique. She is uh, obviously a comedian, so much comedy. She was a regular on NBC's Up All Night. Hmm. Uh, she most recently played a New York Times reporter on Veep. Oh, okay. Uh, she's she's good, and I've seen her in a variety of sort of one episode here, one episode there. But she, again, brings life to this character who could have been a shrill cliche, but instead you feel for her, and she's this sweet, sort of off-kilter woman who fell for this big oaf guy, <laughs> Yeah. And and you buy into their relationship. I do love that when Hank and Britt go in there and pretend to be selling protection, it's very, again, typical of Hank and Britt. We're half-assing this whole thing. Right. They don't get any kind of badges. Or there's no forgery. There's no There's no work put into this cover. Hank just announces it, and Britt gets to roll with it. That's how it works in Terrier's world. Yeah, just roll with it. And he's kind of like, uh, I guess I'll uh, throw down this tapestry to look tough. Uh, I don't <laughs> uh, This is how I'm improvising. Yeah, Britt's, uh, Britt's half-tough act is uh, is kind of fun to watch. Yeah, and of course he feels terrible throughout the whole yes. thing. Yes! Yeah, he feels the weight of God judging him. But I also like that, what, despite how bad Hank is sometimes at the letting his partner in on things, we've seen time and again, even this early, that he's a good detective. Toilet seat's up, the condom's in the trash. Mm-hmm. He quickly figures out, oh no, Montel's here, he's going to be here again. Right. And I think that that's really important, that, that Hank is good at his job. He is excellent. I mean, he solves the case... That the cops couldn't solve for like what a year, a yeah. couple years, and he and, in minutes. And, and I love that he gets a chance to gloat in front of Gustafson's face. That's so great. And yet, as good as they are at some things, their plan to get this giant of a man was: here's a Louisville Slugger, here's some pepper spray. Let's go get him. <laughs> well, they didn't. They didn't know he was a giant. Oh, that's right. They didn't quite get the idea that he was a giant. Yeah, because uh, the case file said he was about six foot. That's right. There was a, there was a mistake in the case file. Yeah. Well, a mistake or maybe a deliberate mistake, yeah, <laughs> according to Gustafson. Right. But yeah, they show up and all of a sudden it's fucking Lou Ferrigno, you know, when they thought it was going to be, you know, a 200-pound, you know, six-foot guy that they could take. But yeah. nope, they get thrown through the drywall and out the window. Also, another great fight scene, because that fight scene in episode one in the garage with the using the fire extinguisher and the helmet and the car and all this stuff, it's a great fight scene. This is a great fight scene. And it's not like choreographed karate fight scene. <laughs> yeah. It's down and dirty, couple guys getting beat up fight scene, like throwing them through the wall, throwing them out the window, and just beating the hell out of them. It's, it's really well choreographed. Well, you know, it makes sense because they promised that they would come back and fuck up the place, didn't they? Yes, yes, and they, they did. did. <laughs> As they're getting out, Montel yells, did Bradley send you? Which sets them on to Bradley David Denham, a.k.a. his brother. 
aka half brother. I was going to say douche bro, but half brother works. Yeah. So Bradley David Denham is played by a guy everyone will recognize. This is one of those that guy actors. This is Nate Mooney. I recognize him especially as Ryan McPoyle on Always Sunny. It's oh, Always Sunny yes. in Philadelphia. He's great playing this sort of skeevy guy. He's the he's the legit guy. He's the guy who has a real job in that he's a bookkeeper at the racetrack, which compared to Montel's armed robber makes him a legit brother. Right. Half brother. But basically he's still the, he's the scumbag in this story. He's the villain. Well, you know, he also works at the racetrack. Yeah. You know, so yeah, the, he's got a little bit of scumbag in him. Yeah. 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 I mean, only on a relative scale is he the, <laughs> the legit brother. Right. Here. I mean, our legit half brother does, in fact, shoot him in the arm. So he is by no means the good guy here. But before we get to that, I think it's interesting that they introduced some characters. They're sort of their their lone gunmen. Right. They're, they're hackers who will make recurring appearances throughout the show. Yeah. What did you think about their introduction? Did you like them? Did you I think liked, they're a little forced? I liked him right away. Okay. Uh, did you buy them? Because I uh, buy these guys. Nah, yeah. Really? Later yeah. on, I do. Here, I was just a little bit like, okay, here are the douche bro nerd characters. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I like the Kierkegaard yeah. line. That was pretty funny. I guess towards the end of that tiny little scene, their interaction, for me, kind of worked. But I've seen so many shows where they, the show, it's almost like a hand wave. It's almost like, oh, we need this tech thing to happen for the plot to advance. Guess what? I know a bunch of nerds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although um, I run a comic book store, uh-huh. so I know a bunch of nerds. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Although but that, can, I, they, can, can they tap into uh, somebody's phone over a police tap? I've never asked, uh-huh. but I have this feeling that if I needed that, okay. I could probably find it. All right. I don't know anyone who lives in an RV and has a bunch of tech around them. Mm-hmm. But I, again, I might just not have asked. Okay. But yeah, you're you're not wrong. They these guys are a little larger than life than even most of Terriers. But we talked about how this show is a little left of center, a little heightened reality. Right. Uh, it's just occasionally maybe they got turned up a little too much in this one. I'm but not. I, I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm not saying it doesn't work at all. But maybe for me, it was my least favorite part of this episode. That leads to them being there when Montel gets shot, and uh, they wind up dragging him over to Katie to to Katie's house, Katie and Britt's house, which we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. But. I love when Katie Katie is not amused when Montel shows up. Not, oh, no. Not remotely. Yeah, I want to go to that conversation real quick. What the hell? Oh, shit. You know, um, I got to ask Hank. Hey, Katie. I looked the wound over, okay? Bullock just grazed him. I was just, you know, some disinfectant, a couple of stitches, and a bandage. He'll be right as rain. Guys, I I can't. You have experience doing this. Yet a Burmese cat under heavy sedation in a sterile environment with supervision. No. And once Katie's involved, I think the whole thing takes a jump up. Like the stakes go a little bit higher because now she is sort of guarding Montel while Britt and Hank have to run off and do their case finishing up thing, which I think is a good indication of how Hank and Britt both trust Katie. We see that she definitely earns that trust because she doesn't violate anything. You know, she keeps her boundaries away from their prisoner, Montel, even though she does get to know him on a nice little emotional level a little later. But what what happens after this scene, I was a total, not shock, but it just went in a completely different direction that I was expecting. You know, I thought, okay, there's going to be this really strange circuitous plan to find the money or get the money uh, at the at the track, yeah. And guess what? They're in on a police sting. Yeah. You know? Instead, they do what they. And this was 
the least cheaty that they've done. Yeah. They just sort of went to Gustafson, actually. Yeah, they, they work with the cops. Yeah. And uh, I love the little callback to them using the clothes from their dry cleaner friend from the first episode. Oh, so good. And seeing those guys in the track clothes was great. I actually think the track shot, the establishing shots of that, is another great use of San Diego, the backdrop of San Diego that they do, because they do such a great job of showing what Ocean Beach looks like. I mean, it looks like Cal- it looks like San Diego. You're right. The racetrack stuff where you see the horses... And then you see the people around in the fancy clothes at the at the racetrack. The big hats. The big hats. There's a lot of just incidental establishing stuff I think is really well done there. I love that. Yeah, I love that they basically just set Denim up for Gustafson. There's, you're expecting a big elaborate sting, and in fact, it's a pretty simple sting. And they walk in there, and they look so ridiculous in those rich people clothes. Yes. And I like that they feel so uncomfortable. Why do we feel so uncomfortable in this? Because that's uh, made for a rich person. (laughs) (laughs) These guys just just are never going to be the rich guys who get these tailor fitted clothes. You know, you look at them and even though they're wearing these clothes, these, I guess in this context would be nice, rich clothes, even though they look kind of silly, they look old Don Johnson-y. Yeah. You still know they don't belong there and they don't belong in these clothes because I mean, for one, they're all beat up and bruised up. It's like, who are these guys? Who are these imposters? It just goes back to the idea that these are scrappy losers. They're always going to get the job done, right? They're never going to present well, and they're never going to be the guys that are going to be handed the trophy, I guess. And that goes back to something I wanted to talk about, which is the title of the show. Because we talked about the top about the marketing, and the marketing was off. And people like to lambast that Terriers was a bad name for the show. I don't actually think Terriers is a bad name for the show. If Terriers, the show name, had been combined with stronger marketing, like indicating that it was about beach cop detectives, they're scrappy. They don't quit. Like, it it makes a lot of sense. In fact, they even sort of make nods at it in the opening opening part of the episode where they talk about, like, we need we need a mascot. We need a business card. You know, we don't quit. That kind of thing. They they talk about that kind of thing. Yeah. But it is interesting that they, they were talking about getting a mascot and that Winston, who recurs at the end of this episode and becomes their dog mm-hmm. is sort of the mascot. Kind he of the is mascot. the terrier, yeah. yeah. And I think that that was sort of the nod. I mean, they were definitely pointing toward it for at more than just... They didn't come go into a room and go, okay, well, we made this 13-episode show about beach cops. What do we call it? And then this is what stuck. Like, there was a reason they called it terriers. It just didn't quite flow with the marketing they used. You know, if this was a book, you know, if, yeah. if it was Terriers, a book, and it was the same exact story, same yeah. exact characters, and it was a paperback, uh, you know, an, an old paperback in a used bookstore, and I saw it, and it said Terriers on it, and it had maybe the silhouette of the two guys, yeah, you know, and it looked kind of detective-y, I'd be, and I'd look at the back cover, see what it was about, and be like, hey, that's a cool name, this sounds like a cool story, that seems to fit, I'm going to buy this book, I'm going to have fun reading about these beach cop detectives, right? And they could have done that with this show. Like you said, it's not a bad name. No. It makes sense, and you described exactly why it makes sense in the context of these two characters and and their whole thing, but just the way it was marketed. I mean, you just said that Winston kind of becomes a de facto mascot, but in the marketing, there is a dog in all of the promo shots, but it's not Winston. I mean, honestly, if the marketing had been Hank and Britt talking the way they they talk yeah. while walking Winston. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That would have gotten people to watch the show. There you go. But a dog barking at a camera does not sell at all what this show is about. No. So yeah, it's it's got to come down to the marketing. And also, I do think partly that it was a show before its time. It was. That people were not ready for sort of prestige TV. But hopefully they'll be ready for when the movie comes out soon. 
I don't know if that's, no, that's gonna not. Yeah, it's going to happen. All right. Don't take this away from me. All right, crowdfund it. <laughs> all right. Uh, to wrap things up, we talked about them working with the cops and the wiretap and all that kind of thing, and then he immediately reveal that they held something important back because they let Montel go with his girlfriend. He's headed off to Mexico, and I love the deal they make with him that. He doesn't rob any liquor stores for a year. Not not forever, just for a year. Just a year. And then when he does it again, just don't use a gun. <laughs> don't use a gun. Which, I don't know if Montel coming into my store with a gun or without a gun is any less threatening. No, no, no. I would give him all the things. Yeah, if he yeah. says, give me give me that behind the bar, mm-hmm. I'm giving him whatever he wants because he could probably pick me up with one hand and throw me out a window. Yeah, here are all the things to the bar. Here are the keys to my car. <laughs> Uh, I, I can put you in the will, if you like. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Any other thoughts about dog and pony? One more thing. Going back to that conversation they have at the beginning of the episode about the mascot. You know, Brit had a really good idea. They should have gone with the dragon. <laughs> Game of Thrones, people. <laughs> all right. We're going to end things there. I'd like to thank Mike Moody for joining me to discuss episode two of Terriers. Thanks for having me on. Be sure to check out Mike's own episodic TV review podcast, Mr. Roboto, in which he discussed the USA show, Mr. Robot, at MrRobotPodcast.com. And be sure to check out the rest of the TV-centric shows on our network, Permanent Record, which Mike also runs. You're a busy guy, Mike. Yes. Okay, so where are we leaving off with this episode? An unconventional couple, a tale of two dogs, and against literally everyone's advice, Hank buys a house. Yep, ain't we got fun. Beach Cop Detectives is an independently run podcast co-produced by Randy Lander and Grant Davis from the TV Dudes and part of the Permanent Record Network. Music for this series includes the surf music tracks Happy and Whimsical by Paul Tayan. To hear more of his work, go to soundcloud.com slash Paul Tayan. Artwork for the show is by Nate Bliss. You can find him at nateblis-art.tumblr.com. You can like us on Facebook at Beach Cop Detectives and on Twitter at Beach Cop Podcast. You can hear weekly TV commentary by Randy and Grant at the TV Dudes.com. Thanks for listening.